0: Welcome to episode 146. Today, Dr. Maria Choi-Pena talks about bringing translanguaging and universal design for learning harmoniously together. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families.
1: Your beautiful smile, your beautiful
0: Many of us are fans of translanguaging and practitioners of translanguaging. Some of us are also experts in universal design for learning if we work with special education. What would happen if we brought both of them together? In this podcast, Dr. Maria Choi-Pena shows us how we can combine translanguaging and UDL together to create more spaces for students to be included and to enjoy the most equitable learning experiences. Now, onto today's podcast. I am so excited once again to have back Dr. Maria Choi-Pena, a friend of the podcast. She's been here now three times, and so that's one of the highest uh, occurrences, reappearances uh, on the podcast. No way! (laughs) Welcome back, Dr. Joy Peña.
1: Thank you. Oh, my gosh. That makes me really happy Um, and really grateful because this audience and you have been so receptive of my work. Um, And, you know, that's really what I've always wanted is just to make sure that this work gets out to teachers and is actually making an impact in classrooms. So thanks for having me back so many times.
0: Well, you've done so much for the field. Like each time we had you come back, you did different things. Like the first time you came back was we talking about like how to be an anti-racist teacher. I was like, mm-hmm. so powerful. And then we moved to your book, which is about mothering uh,
1: labeled children.
0: Yes, mothering labeled children. And sorry, <laughs> I was like, wait, I didn't want to I want to say it correctly. And then when you did the ML Summit last year, you presented on uh, True DL, and I was like, oh, so good. We need to have you come mm. back.
1: Yeah, thanks. You know, it's really interesting because my work feels like it's kind of all over the place, right? Because I touch on all these different areas, but I think what it really speaks to is to the interconnected experiences of our students and their families, right? So, you know, anti-racist teaching has to be part of language education, right? Thinking about families and the impact of our classroom practices on them has to be part of language education. And now thinking about how to make our programs the most accessible and inclusive. Right. That's also part of language education. So, you know, it's important for me to say that at the forefront, because it may feel like these are all so different. Um, but at the core of it, what brings them together is the students and the families, right? And my desire to not only talk about what they're experiencing, but also support teachers in correcting those experiences or in changing that future.
0: It's the more I teach, the more I realize that when I teach language acquisition, it's not about actually just only language acquisition, it's about relationships with students, it's about cultural relevance, it's It's almost like a Rubik's cube where you have to move this part and move that for all of it to fit together.
1: Absolutely. And this idea that, you know, our students are multidimensional people and so they are going to need multidimensional care. Right. Um, And so we as teachers are also complex and multidimensional people and we need multidimensional supports as well.
0: See, it's we've, we've just been recording for five minutes, and it's already been so good. <laughs> Tell us about your work right now.
1: Um. So right now, I am well. Right now, it's May uh, when we're recording this, and I'm currently uh, an assistant professor at Montclair State University. Um, but I am moving uh, to Penn Graduate School of Education um, in July, where I will be um, working in the Educational Linguistics Division. Um, on anti-racist language education. Um, you know, obviously still incorporating anti-ableist components because that's the, you know, the crux of my work. Um, and in terms of my scholarship, I'm continuing to look at issues related to language. More recently, I'm really thinking about the shifts that came about from the pandemic. Um, how we're really thinking not only about families, but about learning um, and about education and about how we relate uh, as teachers and families together. Um, And, you know, just exploring what's out there. And There's so much to ask questions about and to look into, you know, especially even now as like the politics are changing and we're talking about um, different civil liberties, right? Like that is also incorporated in how we think about language and what could happen next for people who use minoritized languages.
0: Well, those Penn students are in for a treat with you, Dr. (laughs) Peña.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Can you tell us, uh, before we get into your true uh, UDL framework, which is about translanguaging and UDL, could you talk to us about how you came up with this framework?
1: So, Part of this work really came about um, from my being a member in CUNY NISUB, which is the City University of New York initiative with New York State on emergent bilinguals. Um, and you know, I was one of the few people who had a special education background, um, who was a member of CUNY NISUB and I had been previously a bilingual special education teacher. So I've been working all this time and thinking about translanguaging and how do we make translanguaging not only a resource or a theory that we use for typically developing children, but for all children, right? Especially the students at the margin. And I have a friend, uh, Louis Olander, who was my classmate, and he also worked for CUNY Um, And he was a UDL specialist, right? That was really his bread and butter. Um, and him and I started talking and really thinking about kind of the places where there could be overlap. Um, and I remember in one of these little videos that we recorded for CUNY NICEP, we ended up saying something like, "It's not universal if it's in if it's only in English." And that really was kind of the seed that got planted. And that was about, I would say four or five years ago. Um, And then over time, I kept workshopping this idea, um, particularly with students at Teachers College, um, where I was often invited to give a guest lecture around this concept, right? Around how do we meet the needs of students? And I think it's important for me to share also that I went back to grad school because I felt a tension as a bilingual special education teacher, that I had been trained as a bilingual teacher and as a special education teacher, but that the amalgamation of the two was actually something very different. Um, And I was struggling in that space. And I think Trudiel really comes out of that wanting to meet both needs, right? Um, In a way that isn't just here, we can just put these two things together, but really thinking about it thoughtfully as like how do these things align and how do we present openings for inclusion for students without overburdening teachers with more tasks, right? So if teachers already know trans right? And they already know universal design for learning, how can we talk about them bringing these two things together? Um, and that really was where this emerged from, you know, and then over the years, I just really worked on refining the idea more and more.
0: Yeah, when I first heard about it, I was like, oh yeah, you of course you can change language in UDL. And of, of course UDL works for, with change language, it's like back and forth, but uh, w- for those who are not familiar with both of them, could you give us a very brief synopsis of both?
1: Yeah, so You know, translanguaging can be thought of in multiple ways. I think we can think of translanguaging as a theory, right, which is understanding the practices of language users, right, from the perspective of the language user. So what we used to think about as code switching, right, we need to understand as it's the same behavior that we see in translanguaging. It's just a different position of understanding. Right. So when we talk about code searching, that's from the perspective of the listener, because all you're thinking about is, oh, this person can't stick to one language. Right. But when we're thinking about it from the perspective of trans you're thinking about it from a strength based perspective, right? Of, Oh, wow. This person is using all of their linguistic repertoire, all of the language, all of the words that they have. Right. This is physical communication too, right? facial language, um, body language to communicate to make meaning, right? And so we view that as a strength, right? That it was more important to communicate, right? Than to stick to a code. It is more that this person is more interested in being heard, right? Than they are in being correct. Um, And that that's important, right? Because for even with bilingual people, right? I was a bilingual, a special education teacher like I already mentioned and you know, in the roller coaster model, it's like Spanish half of the day, English half of the day. But if I stick to those boundaries, a newcomer student, right, is then going to be silent for half of the day, right? Or I'm going to watch their perceptions of communicating with me as a failure to learn English rather than. A strength, right? And a comfort that this person is feeling more comfortable in our classroom community, that this person is feeling more valued, that they want to be seen and heard, right? Um, that they want to communicate. I think that that's the difference in transanguaging, right? That when we think about it as a theoretical framework, obviously then that comes into pedagogy, right? How do we structure our classrooms? How do we structure our language teaching? Um, how do we create intentional spaces for students to use their? language? How do we structure our classroom practices so that we don't view those things as deficits, right, but that we view them as strengths and as opportunities to move students forward, right, and towards their fullest capacity? And obviously, it's also a political stance, right, of believing that the way that multilingual people are and move about the world is valid, right, Um, and that it is not only is it valid, it is the way that the majority of the world functions, right? Um, and so to talk about monolingualism as normative is actually disingenuous and it's and it's connected to power plays, right, and trying to maintain systems of power. And so translanguaging is trying to disrupt that as well, right? And. It's interesting to think about this framework or this idea, this theory of translinguaging, how it's evolved over time and that people don't, you know, it's hard to understand how something can start as just we're understanding a language practice to seeing it as this political movement. But I think all ideas are like that, right? And all understandings of language or of human behavior tend to be like that. But the more we study something, the more complex it becomes and the more we understand it as not only an act, right, but an act of survival, an act of being, an act of joy, an act of resistance. Um, And so that's how I think about translanguaging. Um, Now to switch gears to universal design for learning, universal design for learning, on the other hand, is a very structured kind of a thing, right? It comes, it's thought about, As a science, right, it's very rooted in science and in positivist kind of theories, but yet it's created to make space, right, to make space for everyone. And it's really rooted in this idea of um, the social model of disability, that disabilities are not inherently bad, right, or impairments are not inherently bad. They become a disability when the person interacts with society and society has all these limits and walls. What does that mean? It means something like, let's say you are a pregnant person, right? And you go to a train station. If there are stairs there, right? That's going to be very difficult for you to climb up a set of stairs, right? And we could just assume that you can do it because everybody who is a non-pregnant person, right? The normal person is able to climb the stairs, but why can't we think about how do we facilitate this person's participation in society, rather than making it, you need to fit into the structure because this is the norm. Right. And so UDL really comes from this idea and it, it is really based on um, universal design, which is an architectural framework. Um, and then it was adopted into, into education. And it's this idea that we can create opportunities for access for people that benefits everyone in ways that we don't even recognize. Right. So we think about something like sidewalk cutouts. Solid raw products were created for the garment district in New York City for them to be able to roll clothing from one part of the factory to another place, right? But they benefit strollers, they benefit people who go on bikes, but we mostly think about it as being wheelchair related. Why, right? It's somehow like we've decided that the exception is the abnormal thing without thinking about how all of us really benefit from these different accessibility options. And so universal design for learning is really rooted in how do we make learning actually accessible to everyone across modes of learning so that we're not just saying, well, this is the lesson. We're all going to learn, you know, math the standard way and this is the path. No, right. We're going to find different ways because the interest for us is not on how you learn, right, but that you learn. And so that's really universal design for learning. It's finding multiple pathways for you to access the content and for you to walk away feeling like you've learned something, right, and having learned something.
0: I wrote the word accessibility and participation. Both translanguaging and UDL like, supports the learners so that they can participate fully in whatever way they show up, linguistically, mm-hmm cognitively in whatever way we want them to we want school to be inclusive and and combining translanguaging and udl makes the school really inclusive makes the learning equitable for students
1: yeah and also you know something that i didn't mention is this idea of oral speech production right that udl also creates a space for students who are not ready to produce um, speech orally or for students who can't right um or you know like I'm trying to present this in a way that speaking isn't the norm, right? But there's different ways that people use language than oral production. And I think universal design for learning also allows that for us. And I think as language educators, we need to be cognizant that sometimes we take oral production for granted and assume that that's everything, that that is a representation for everything that a student possesses in terms of knowledge or even language proficiency, right? Um, And I think UDL combined with translanguaging really offer us an opportunity, actually not us, really offers students, right, an opportunity to present as many parts of themselves as they could, right, and so what it gives us as teachers is the capability to build that space, right, that safe space where you know that who you are as a learner is welcome regardless of how you communicate or how you process information or how you know you you share new knowledge.
0: Well, Thank you for adding that that nuanced perspective as well that that oral language production part. Can you talk to us about how they complement each other?
1: Yeah and I think you had kind of started touching on that right the accessibility is one I think The main things that I keep thinking about or the the kind of words that I keep thinking about are proactive, intentional, um, inclusive planning, right? proactive, intentional, inclusive planning. I think that that really is the way that they complement each other, Um, both, you know, practices and now I'm talking about translanguaging as a practice right obviously still encompassing all those other theoretical and political aspects but translanguaging as a practice and universal design as a practice design for learning as a practice are both really focused on building spaces for students in advance you know I remember Ophelia often being like you don't want to just be like at the flash Translating, right? All of a sudden, what you're doing. You want to be thinking about this, right? Like, where are the good moments? Where are the moments where students can benefit from this and build off of this? Where are the moments where we want to have it be more casual and more relaxed, right? So that it's not just off the cuff. And similarly with Universal Design for Learning, right? You don't just decide that you're going to include visuals at the last minute because it just occurred to you, right? It's about thinking again about what are all the different pathways that my students can access this information that I can make available to them. Um, and I think it's, you know, again, being responsive to where students are rather than where we as teachers believe that they should be.
0: You just cited uh, Dr. Ophelia Garcia and every time you talk about her, I always think about what she said about young scholars like you. It, she once said that you said how Uh, Translanguaging has moved to uh, encompass a political side, like teaching as a political act. She thanked young scholars like yourself who helped her see, oh, it's not just a theoretical framework; it's not just practice; it's dismantling language hierarchy. So she, Mm -hmm. every time you mentioned her, I was like, she also mentioned you.
1: Oh, thanks. You know, and I think that that's one really important. Part about Trudiel, right, is that I was able to think about this because I was working with scholars like Ophelia, right, who are really supporting the growth of these ideas, who are really interested in translanguaging for the people, right, who are really interested in translanguaging for teachers, right? So, like, for us to take it on and make it work, right, for our students while still maintaining these values and principles. And I think that that's why the political identity part of it is so important because it really pushes forward why we do this um, and the intentionality of this rather than, oh, this is just a scaffold, this isn't just a scaffold, this is how I move in the world, right? Like I will be, I am currently walking through the street talking to my neighbors saying hello in English while listening to Bad Bunny's latest album and my headphones, right? I am modeling that trans language life. Right. Um, you know, even something like talking about bad bunny again. Right. I watched an interview of him where the interviewer was talking to him in English. Bad bunny was answering, comp- you know, for the most part in Spanish, using a couple of English words that he had. That's a trans moment. Right. No one would view this multimillionaire, multi like whatever artist as deficient, right? For communicating in that way. Instead we look at it as like, wow, look how important he is. People are working around him and, you know making this interview work. Why are our students not deserving of that same level of care, but also visibility, right? Why can't we view our students being in discussion with each other with such awe, right? With such appreciation for what is actually happening in communication, right? So it's it's these ideas of how we look and understand the world that it's not just a classroom plat- practice. This is how I live my life. This is how so many other children, right? And other multilingual people live their lives. And so I really think that that's what's brought forward, right, about understanding this, even with UDL, right? We do not, all approach learning in the same way. That's why we have books on audio, right? We have movies about books. We also have large texts and mini text So why can't we incorporate those ideas into our classrooms, right? Why is it that there's only one way to prove knowledge or prove growth, right? And I feel that like TrueDL for me is an opportunity to create space for students to define themselves, right? As knowledgeable and as growing.
0: When you shared that that bad bunny example, (laughs) that story, I thought about Dr. Kate um, Seltzer, who also worked at uh, CUNY NICEF. And she, when Mm -hmm. I interviewed her, she said, translanguaging helps us see students in different ways. And I was like, oh, yes, it's exactly what you said. Let's move towards, you talked about planning part, intentional planning, uh, as part of 2DL. Can you talk about the planning framework?
1: Sure. Um, So the planning framework is really uh, structured around three questions, um, or kind of three ideas for me. So the first is looking at multilingual and multimodal kind of teacher directed strategies, right? Um, And so you as the educator are selecting the strategies and putting them into practice and really thinking about how will this support students? Um, So that's the first tier. The second tier is thinking about multilingual and multimodal student practices, right? Um, So these are things that the students can take on. And again, we're focused on flexibility and on increasing student output. And I'll talk a little bit about what these look like when I give an example in this a couple seconds or a minute. Um, and then the third thing, you know, that really anchors all of the first two principles together is this commitment to culturally responsive practices, right? Um, and making sure that these practices are related to student interests and their idea and their identity but for a purpose, right? When we're, we're thinking beyond, you know, the folk tales and fiestas, right? We're thinking beyond heroes and holidays. Like there are parts of culture that our students are interested in that are not those things, right? That we can be thinking about and be bringing into the classroom. Um, so typically what I recommend to teachers, you know, and because this is, again, this is a starting, this is a new framework, this is a, a build, a starting step, I really tried to keep it very simple and maybe a little bit um, prescriptive in the practices that people will follow. But again, I just see it as if we start in this way, eventually with enough comfort, you can kind of take on and it could take on a life of itself, right? A life of its own. Um, But I was just really interested in giving teachers a starting place. and for so when teachers are gonna take this on, I ask them to pick a part of their class that they are kind of interested in. So I always think about it in terms of a mini lesson, right? So is it the teaching points, the active engagement, the independent part, like where, where is it gonna be? Um, so let's say we're thinking about the teaching point, right? So I, as an educator, I'm gonna come and do this work. I'm gonna to put together a lesson and I'm gonna incorporate a True DL strategy into this. So what I would do is first, I would go into the translanguaging guide, right? And I offered a sheet sheet on this page um, and this article, which is linked. um, TESOL has it as supplemental pieces, but I also, and I'll give you the link to this 10. I have a video where I talk about the strategy um, and I link the documents below it too. Um, And so I recommend that teachers first select a translanguaging strategy that they want to build off of. Um, and the reason why I start with the translanguaging strategy is because I'm thinking about this for language educators first, um, and for special education teachers second. And the reason for that is because the issues of with inclusivity within language education are much more pressing right now for me than the reverse. Um, and so we start with the translanguaging strategy. And then from there, I ask teachers to look at an um, UDL framework sheet, right? That looks at, again, are you concerned about representation, right? How are you gonna present this to the students? Action and expression, how are the students gonna take this on, right? Or how are they gonna show you that what they've learned or engagement? Um, And so again, right, this could be representation because I'm gonna be doing a teaching demo. And so from there, I would pick things that align with each other and build off of that. So in the article, um, I include an example of um, for independent time, right? So. The translanguaging strategy was allow students to audio record ideas first using both languages, then transfer to writing. Very classic translanguaging strategy. And I feel like it's a classic strategy that most language educators can use nowadays, right? Um, Or a a comfortable using. Well, then I looked at the uh, UDL framework and I looked under action and expression because this was during an independent time. What are suggested there? Use multiple tools for construction and composition. Oh, okay. So why is it just record an audio recording? Maybe I can think about different ways that students could record, right? And so I ended up expanding that to allow students to, A, audio record ideas first using both languages, then transfer to writing. B, dictate the story, right, using both languages, using computer software, Right. Or C, use sentence strips and starters or a closed paragraph, right, in the target language to write out their story. So again, still have the same linguistic goal that we had. We're just creating multiple opportunities for students to meet that goal. Right. And that's really what I care about. It's students meeting the goal, not necessarily the how. There are moments where the how matters, right? So maybe it is gonna be a writing strategy that you care about where you're trying to get students to produce writing. How do we do that? Why can't we use computer software? Where is that in the rules, right? Like, why can't we use these tools that we use in society, right? So many of my graduate students are teachers who listen to the articles for class on natural reader, right? So why can't we extend that same opportunities to our students, right? Um, I know that I dictate articles, like writings to myself, right? If I'm going for a walk, I'll dictate something. If an idea comes to my mind, why can't we have that available for students, right? So it's really about intentionally creating these spaces and opportunities for students to get there. And this all really goes back to Something that I said the first time that I was on here with you, Tan, which is teachers releasing control, right? And so, TrueDL is about building a framework, right, where your students can have freedom, but you as a teacher can have confidence that they will reach the end goal. That's that's really how I think about it is, how do I create a space where you have as many opportunities as possible to reach the target? And I can feel like I've given you lots of avenues as a teacher, right? So that we're not fighting and being resistant, right? So that you feel seen as a student and I feel heard as a teacher also.
0: I love this. I wrote down like, we keep the goal the same. We just create, we let go of the process and let students own that like the how to get there mm-hmm. right? and we're just giving them multiple options and I just love your framework and I have it here it's it's for UDL it's representation action and expression and engagement mm-hmm. we're thinking about like okay how can they where's the representation there how can they be engaged in this right? mm-hmm. how can they express themselves in a different way right? and it just makes just just with those three ideas those three pathways Students have so many different ways to meet the goal, meet that standard, but show it in a way that's more affirming to them.
1: Yeah. And honestly, again, I don't think that this is necessarily anything that teachers aren't doing, right? I think what this is, is a structured way, right? To do it with intentionality, right? To do it with purpose, Um so that you as an educator don't feel flustered, right, at the last minute. So that when a new student walks into your class, you don't have to go, oh my God, what am I gonna do about this kid? Because you've had things built in, right? One of the things that I've prided myself on as a university professor is that I do have a universal design for learning course. Like I've designed my course in that way, my syllabus is designed in that way. So that whenever I have a student who comes to me and is like, oh, here's my letter from the Disability Resource Center, I almost always, I'm really confident because when I look at it, I've already built in supports for that issue before the student arrived, because I thought that it was appropriate for all students, right? If it's things like lateness policies, if it's things like choosing what the final project is in, I have students who submit a podcast, a blog, um, students who submit a paper, students who submit infographics, right? Because for me, again, the research process is what I care about, right? So how they show me what they learned is insignificant to me, right? Because it's more about where their passions are being put into, right? Um, You know, I learn things not necessarily to write a paper every time, right? Sometimes I learn things because I want to build something. Sometimes I learn things because I want to improve at a skill, right? So how do we also create that space for students, and that love of learning and the purpose of learning, right, that isn't just to finish this one task.
0: Oh, I can just imagine, well, how how schooling has changed when I went to the university, where it's just like paper, 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 and you're like, an infographic, a podcast as a summative, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, because I'm training teachers and use these processes, it's important that I reflect them too, right? Um, I'm walking my walk or I'm talking my walk. That we as educators can recognize this. I mean, we hate sitting through lectures and meetings. We really find frustrations with papers. Some people love papers, right? But not everybody does. And like, that's true for little kids too. And I know that there are standards in place and I know that there are requirements in place. And I'm not saying that we don't have to also meet those, what I am saying though is, some of these students will meet those regardless, and this is an opportunity for us to get those students closer, right? So if you had a student who hated writing, whether you had the infographic or the video project on there, you know, doesn't mean that they're going to write more. They're, they're going to be more likely to write, right? It's just probably going to be a lot more resistance, a lot more tension. Um, but what if that student thought that they were writing a script?
0: For a video.
1: That might be a different experience for them. Right, right.
0: And we know that from Krashen's so. work, when the effective filter is high, students are not exactly. gonna know. all the cognitive function is not gonna be used to be creative, to be collaborative, it's to hide and defend. Exactly. And to resist. Right. Well, this has been such a practice you every time you come on the podcast I'm like oh she's so good oh I need to change my (laughs) practice (laughs) or I'm like I want to go back and learn with you
1: but you know I just want to say that I'm just so grateful to you and to teachers out there you know being in the classroom doing this work because if if you weren't out there doing this work, I wouldn't have the opportunities or the moments to reflect on, right? And I'm able to do this work because, you know, of the grace of teachers, because teachers are wanting to do the best, right? And because teachers are interested in learning more, and I refuse to buy into this idea that teachers are lazy or they don't want to do it. You know, like I know how hard we work. And so I want to produce pieces like this for us, um, for teachers to feel like I know these things and all I need is just like a tweak in my practice, right? Rather than like a whole new reinvention. So I think another thing that's really hard in practices like this, or when something new comes out is we feel like, oh my God, I've failed my students before. I haven't been doing it right. It's like, when you know better, you do better. You didn't know. Now we know, right? And like I'm learning and growing, and I'm not sitting here acting like everybody should do this because it's amazing. It took me years, right, to like get this to a place where it's a 3,500 word paper, you know. So I think it's it's important to give ourselves grace as educators and um, to recognize that we're working together, you know, as researchers and classroom teachers. At least that's my intention.
0: Well, I think this 3,500 paper is will be the seed for a multi-chapter book. So we're, we're ready for you to write this book.
1: Oh, no, we're all set. all set. I'm starting a new job, didn't you hear?
0: Speaking of your <laughs> new job, um, what would the, not everybody is so fortunate enough to um, have a UPenn professor teach them. So what is one thing you would like your uh, almost new teachers, like leaving teaching school to know about? working with multilingual students. We we'll end there with the podcast.
1: I want teachers to know that working with multilingual students is a gift. Um it is it's an intellectual gift. It really is. You learn so much about the world, about relationships, about humanity. I just there's so much promise in our students, and I'm just so grateful that this is a community of teachers that sees that.
0: Well, you are a shining light in that community and helping us. I, you told me once, uh, at the end of a podcast, you said, oh, Tan, I could do this twice on Sunday. And I'm like, oh, I could do this twice on Sunday with you as <laughs> well.
1: Thank you so much, Tan. Until next time.
0: Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. Dr. Choi Pena's framework for translanguaging within Universal Design for Learning is another way we can create and make learning inclusive for all students, regardless of their development linguistically. I want to emphasize wherever you see the most equitable and inclusive classrooms, you can find an intentional teacher planning ways for students to be successful. One way to ensure students are successful is to give more control of the process over to students. I'm still working on this part of letting go. With Dr. Choi Pena's framework, I can do a little better at letting go for students to do a little more with who they are and with what they have. Because who they are and what they have is already more than enough. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.